This episode is brought to you by AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I view AG1 as comprehensive nutritional insurance, and that is nothing new. I actually recommended AG1 in my 2010 bestseller, more than a decade ago, The 4-Hour Body, and I did not get paid to do so. I simply loved the product and felt like it was the ultimate nutritionally dense supplement that you could use conveniently while on the run, which is, for me, a lot of the time. I have been using it a very, very long time indeed. And I do get asked a lot what I would take if I could only take one supplement. And the true answer is invariably AG1. It simply covers a ton of bases. I usually drink it in the mornings and frequently take their travel packs with me on the road. So what is AG1? What is this stuff? AG1 is a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients. In a single scoop, AG1 gives you support for the brain, gut, and immune system. Since 2010, they have improved the formula 52 times in pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible using rigorous standards and high-quality ingredients. How many ingredients? 75. And you would be hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense formula on the market. It has a multivitamin, multimineral superfood complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an antioxidant immune support formula, digestive enzymes, and adaptogens to help manage stress. Now, I do my best always to eat nutrient-dense meals. That is the basic, 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 basic requirement, right? That is why things are called supplements. Of course, that's what I focus on, but it is not always possible. It is not always easy. So, Part of my routine is using AG1 daily. If I'm on the road, on the run, it just makes it easy to get a lot of nutrients at once and to sleep easy knowing that I am checking a lot of important boxes. So each morning, AG1. That's just like brushing my teeth, part of the routine. It's also NSF certified for sports, so professional athletes trust it to be safe. And each pouch of AG1 contains exactly what is on the label, does not contain harmful levels of microbes or heavy metals, and is free of 280 banned substances. It's the ultimate nutritional supplement in one easy scoop. So take ownership of your health and try AG1 today. You will get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription purchase. So learn more, check it out. Go to drinkag1.com slash Tim. That's drinkag1, the number one. Drinkag1.com slash Tim. Last time, drinkag1.com slash Tim. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your sleep preferences. Their lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, that's not me, and even a mattress made specifically for kids. They have models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, as I often do and did last night on one of their beds. Models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions and on and on. They have you covered. So how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? Take the Helix Sleep Quiz at helixsleep.com slash Tim and find your perfect mattress in less than two minutes. Personally, for the last few years, I've been sleeping on a Helix Midnight Luxe mattress. 
I also have one of those in the guest bedroom. And feedback from friends has always been fantastic. They frequently say it's the best night of sleep they've had in ages. It's something they comment on without any prompting from me whatsoever. Helix mattresses are American-made and come with a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model. Your mattress will be shipped straight to your door, free of charge. And there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. If you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. Helix has been awarded number one mattress by both GQ and Wired magazines. And now Helix has harnessed years of extensive mattress expertise to bring you a truly elevated sleep experience. Their newest collection of mattresses called Helix Elite includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. So you can get exactly what your body needs. Each Helix Elite mattress comes with an extra layer of foam for pressure relief and thousands of extra microcoils for best in class support and durability. Every Helix Elite mattress also comes with a 15-year manufacturer's warranty and the same 100-night trial as the rest of Helix's mattresses. Helix is now running their Labor Day sale, which you can take advantage of. Until September 10th, get 25% off on all mattress orders plus two free pillows. That is very significant savings. That's 25 off because of their Labor Day sale. So check it out. Go to helixsleep.com slash Tim. One more time, Helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash Tim. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I answer your personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers to tease out the lessons, mental models, and so on that you can apply to your own lives. This podcast episode is a rare treat, a rare appearance by at least one of two guests. And in combination, I think the conversation provides a lot of insight related to uncertainty, related to markets, related to how to think about risk, how to think about tail risk, how to think about silent risk, and also how to take advantage of some of these things and how you plan your life, your finances, and so on. There's a lot to it, a lot of concepts that you can apply in many domains in life. And Let's move on to the bios, shall we? The first guest is Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who spent 21 years as a risk taker, that is, quantitative trader, before becoming a researcher in philosophical, mathematical, and, in his words, mostly practical problems with probability. Taleb is the author of a multi-volume essay, The Inserto, and within that you find The Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness, Anti-Fragile, The Bed of Procrustes, and Skin in the Game. Thanks to Matt Mullenweg for first introducing me to The Black Swan. These all cover broad facets of uncertainty. His work has been published into 49 languages. In addition to his trader life, Taleb has also written as a backup of the inserto more than 70 technical and scholarly papers in mathematical statistics, genetics, quantitative finance, statistical physics, medicine, philosophy, ethics, economics, and international affairs around the notion of risk and probability. These are grouped in the technical inserto. Inserto is spelled I-N-C-E-R-T-O. Taleb is currently Distinguished Professor of Risk Engineering at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering. I believe he's retired. His current focus is on the properties of systems that can handle disorder. In other words, the properties of systems that are, in his 
phrasing anti-fragile. You can find him on Twitter at nntaleb, and that's N-N-T-A-L-E-B, also fooledbyrandomness.com. The second guest is Scott Patterson. Scott Patterson is an investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal, currently based in Washington, D.C., working on climate and energy policy. His new book is Chaos Kings, subtitle How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis, a profile of the rise of black swan traders such as Nassim Taleb and Mark Spitznagel, as well as a survey of the many perils the world faces today and how we might fix them. Scott has covered a lot. He's covered everything from Berkshire Hathaway to stock exchanges to high-speed traders to financial regulators. His first book, The Quants, describes the rise of mathematical finance and delves into its role in the 2008 financial blow-up. Dark Pools, his second book, tells how computer traders took control of the U.S. stock market starting from the birth of computer trading in the 1980s to the explosion of high-frequency trading in the late 2000s. And you can find him on Twitter, at Patterson Scott, and on his website, scottpattersonbooks.com. And lest you think this conversation is only about finance, I want to emphasize that very refined thinking in the world of markets and investing really reflects clarity of analysis and concepts that then lend themselves to a very clear scoreboard. And for that reason, it is a fascinating arena within which you can refine your thinking toolkit for many, many, many other things. And we talk about many of these other areas where these things can be cross-applied. And now without further ado, please enjoy a very wide-ranging conversation with Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Scott Patterson. Well, I'm thrilled to have both of you here. Scott, Thanks for making the journey. I can't believe we have the shared history of Hoagie Haven. We might <laughs> provide that context to people later. An iconic landmark of a spot in Princeton, New Jersey. Nassim, nice to see you. Nice finally to be on that side of the microphone. Yeah, you. definitely, man. And I thought we would start with just providing a bit of context for listeners as to how the two of you connected. So Scott, how did the two of you end up meeting? So this was the mid-2000s. I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. I still am a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. At the time, I was covering hedge funds. And among the hedge fund community, there was this book that a lot of hedge fund managers like to talk about, you know, the secret book that they were passed around that they said was really great. It was called Fooled by Randomness. So I read that book. I thought it was amazing. A rumor among these hedge funds managers was that the hedge fund that the author of that book, Nassim Taleb, had run a hedge fund, but it had shut down. But nobody really knew the truth of whether it shut down or not. So as a reporter, that intrigued me. I think it was actually Neil Chris, a very well-known quant hedge fund manager, who put us in touch. I talked to Nassim. I got him on the phone, and he said, yeah, we shut down a couple of years ago. But there's a new hedge fund that's starting up by my former colleague, Mark Spitznagel. Maybe you want to write about that. So I had a story that came out in the summer of 2007 that broke the news that Empirica had shut down, at least for the broader public. Also broke the news that a new hedge fund was launching called Universa. Similar strategy. And also that the author of Fool by Randomness had a new book coming out the Black uh, Swan, called The Black Swan. Which explained, you know, the transition from 
the author was trying to transit. I kept begging him. I tell him, no, I don't want to be known as a hedge fund manager. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be known a as a financier. For years I'm done. And I reframe it. So I don't want to talk to you except if you talk about my ideas. He said, okay, we're going to talk about your ideas. This is why, I mean, I was, I said, okay, on my uh, grave, I don't want to be known as a trader, but as a scholar. And I remember he was, so he's bringing back a portion of life, but it was at the right time because he contacted us right before the explosion of 2007. Yes. <laughs> and there's a weird connection right there that I'll mention later to you, right? <laughs> there is a very weird connection to me. <laughs> and uh, let me ask you, Nassim, what yes. prompted you to make the transition? Maybe it was a long time in coming, but to decide ultimately to step out of trading or being active as sort of a player because, on the field? Uh, I knew I would never stop. And I still, in my uh, late 30s, early 40s, I had time to really do something else. And I realized the following, that when I had a position, I could be involved in trading, but I didn't want to be the one flying the plane as a passenger or as a co-pilot, maybe. At the time, I said, okay, Mark is much more capable of running this because he loves doing it, okay? And I liked the concepts and the ideas, but didn't like to follow positions. And because it was the minute I would be involved in the trade, it would inhabit me. So I felt like it was, there's something in my brain that was slowed down by the fact that I had to worry about something else out of a sense of responsibility. So Mark didn't have that. So Mark had- He could compartmentalize. He's not, he could compartmentalize, he did nothing else. He, and he was an interest. I, I mean, he did other things, of course, on the side of the distraction. So he was a benefit. So I, I wanted to transit out. So I said, okay, I'll take some time off to finish the Black Swan, which I couldn't finish when I was training, which actually I started before Fooled by Randomness, incidentally. I started Black Swan, and then I said, okay, I'm going to talk about randomness. So I got diverted into Fooled by Randomness. And then I finished the Black Swan. It was almost a 20-year thing. And I realized that I'd like to be a scholar who eats well, who trades once in a while with a sense of... It was like a military person who has an honorary discharge to do other things. And of course, leaves the battleship to those who live for the battle. Okay, so that was what happened. And of course, the rest is history, as, as, as you know. But let me mention one thing that probably your listeners and viewers don't know, that of all the people <laughs> that have been on his podcast, I bet you I'm the first one you've met. It's quite possible. Okay, so you first one. I met you before I met him in probably 2001, 2002. Around that, around and, that time. And, and the first time we met, we, we corresponded and said, oh, this guy has very interesting ideas about hacking things. And then we went to a restaurant, I think on Madison Avenue, and we ate every single egg they had in the store. No? <laughs> I was a good deal larger at the time, and I was in yeah, growth mode. Yeah, so we mode. ate all the eggs <laughs> and for some reason. I mean, they were worried about us. How could people, two human beings, eat so many eggs? So that was my first physical encounter we were corresponding since. before and became friends and there's a interesting scene that we had that, that I have in my mind when Lehman Brothers went bust which basically after our you know we, yeah, we, we connected and then you followed our trade and he wrote about it actually about the quality of the trade and the promise of the trade that we're betting on tail events before the Lehman uh, crisis and on that day that when the day Lehman went bust I was on a plane in Comunicado I land, and the first thing I got was an SMS from him because I was meeting you for dinner. 
And the second thing I got is news that Lehman went bust. So from uh, news from Mark, Lehman went bust. It was the two messages. And that night, I think they ran out of pink champagne in the house. We were with Seth Roberts, the late Seth Roberts, a very interesting person who also was studying hacks. Mm -hmm. Fascinating guy. Yeah, really genuine, lovely human being. And we did consume vast quantities of alcohol. And then last time, in the time before Romania, we met, it was at his funeral. When he came in and paid for the bill, surreptitiously, and I <laughs> want to retaliate tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll have the comeback opportunity with the bill this evening. And uh, you're right. I mean, there are very few, maybe no other guests who've been on the podcast who predate us meeting in 2001, which is wild. And I was probably 30 to 40 pounds heavier in terms of muscle mass. <laughs> I was, I was, all that hoagie haven. I was all that hoagie haven. I was a lot <laughs> bigger at that time. I have many questions about Black Swan and also about the trading career, but actually a letter, which I'll come back to. I think you'll get the reference. But first, I want to ask just for a backdrop for people who may have no familiarity with quants, with betting on tail events. And you have this book, which covers a lot of these topics in depth. You have multiple books. But in the case of betting on tail events, what is a tail event, broadly speaking? And then what are the different ways one can bet on tail events? And you guys can, of course, pass the mic back and forth. But what are the different styles or approaches to betting on tail events? The thing I would say before he launches that the point is not to bet on tail events. The whole idea of the black swan, everything I've, I've been telling everyone, every person I meet, to right? bet on disruption, on no unforeseen, to not be harmed by silent risk. That's the idea. The first thing is don't be harmed by it. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, given that when you study tail events, you say these people are ignoring these risks, so therefore they're risk in the system that people generate and don't see. Hence, you can trade on it. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different approaches. And I think it's, when you talk about betting on a tail event, I would say that what Universa does and Empirica before that is, I wouldn't call that a bet. I would call that a risk management strategy. And that, in a way, is what differentiates them from other hedge funds and traders who who do what I would call betting, you know, or taking positions based on a belief that something's going to happen. What Universa does is they are constantly taking on positions that will pay off massively in a tail event. So their clients are constantly protected. They don't need to make predictions. They never make predictions. It's something that Mark Spitznagel constantly says is that he is shit at forecasting. He's been forecasting a you know, gigantic bear market for decades. He's been right a couple times, but he, he, you know, he will admit, you know, I can't predict the timing of it. It's going to happen one of these days. And that's what they provide for their clients is that constant protection. And they do it by buying far out of the money put options. It's, it's pretty simple. Not easy to implement, I think, which is why you don't see a lot of hedge funds doing this. They do, actually, they do it. And then they go bust. Or they, you know, what happened in the seam, it's very stressful because you can go years without making money in that strategy because it's waiting for an extreme event, a very extreme event. Their strategy is betting on a 20% decline in the S&P 500 in one month, which I think may have happened once or twice 
it happened on Black Monday in 1987 yeah. in one day. But they don't actually need to have that happen to monetize the strategy. They just need to have a very big decline very rapidly. So that happened in 2008, happened a couple of times in the 2010s and 2020. It happened 20s. big time. So I imagine, I mean, it's for somebody who's running a fund like this, for you or Mark, <laughs> that there's the watching the numbers and maybe that form of bleeding chips stress over time. But there's also you have investors who probably in theory are very comfortable with the strategy, but who also panic or have other issues. The genius of Universal is that they managed to package a product as insurance that allows the investors to increase their exposure to the market. Mm-hmm. So think about it. The strategy in and by itself is positive, a huge return. But it's more interesting is that it was hedging something that went up. What did the stock market do since, since then? I mean, it went up like uh, 30%. Twofold. No, no, no. Two, uh, uh, in total, since, say, 19, uh, 2007. Oh, since 2007, yeah. Yeah, it went up say twofold, maybe, and it allowed people to have a larger position, larger exposure to the market than they would otherwise. And, yeah. and also there's a, a cocktail of other strategies that definitely <laughs> didn't fare well because they entail diversification away from stocks. So this one allows you to have stocks. So it's very weird because Mark is always bearish on the market, but he provides people a product <laughs> that couples very well with a very long stock position. That was yeah. what, what was the secret. So given that it's packaged that way, investors tolerated some drawdown, not too much, on the insurance. You see, well, looking at it, you got to look at, uh, you know, it's an the insurance, insurance versus it's an insurance the insured. Yeah. Exactly. Versus the insured. Versus, I mean, hey, hey, this is my differential P&L. And it's the same thing when, when I started trading option, you have an option hedged by stock. And sometimes people only look at the stock performance, and some people only at the option performance. and tell them, no, it's inseparable. You see, you got this is called the delta, right? So that was how they managed. You have to understand that we are one trick, or me intellectually, I'm a one trick pony. I think of nothing else but tail risk. Everything's packaged around tail risk that I do intellectually. But Universal is a one trick pony. Only does one trade. So if you do only one trade. And for a couple of decades, believe me, you know the tricks, mm-hmm. right? You know how much to put on, not too much, not too much. You see the idea, if you do just one trade, and then people come to university and say, no, that's what we do. Why don't you do this for us? No. It's like you're making Maseratis, right? And someone comes to you and say, hey, why don't you make trucks? We don't do trucks. We make bicycles. We don't do bicycles. All we make is one single item. That's it. One single size. And that is the main criticism. One trick ponies. And that's what we're proud about. That's the selling point. Is that we are one-trick ponies. And whether in my work intellectually was worried about tail risk or whether the implementation of Universa of their ideas, of Mark's uh, ideas, one thing, just one single thing. So when you do one thing professionally, you develop some edge. Yeah, well, it makes me think of, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a Bruce Lee quote which says, fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks, but the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Well, there you go. And let me come back to something that you said, Nassim, which was that a lot of these other shops who maybe attempted something they thought was similar went bust. What were some of the fatal flaws or mistakes that 
Well, the first one, okay, the first, the first flaw, and this I noticed in our days, a lot of clients that had initially when we started Empirica were diverted into other funds who were actually mitigating the strategy by instead of, say, you can't buy puts on the S&P 500, you buy puts that are cheaper in some other commodity, you see, and, and hope that they would correlate. So it was, there was a dependence on correlation. So I know someone who actually went bust. He said, called overriding the strategy, buying puts on the S&P 500 and selling puts on the German index to collect more cash out of the trade. So that way he said, oh, we have more staying power. And his investors were proud. They'll guess what happened. The German market went down, <laughs> the U.S. market, the thing exploded, and they were out of business in insurance. Okay, so a lot of our competitors tried to mitigate the strategy. We were absolutely first. That's the other thing is that you notice with uh, players in Universa, if you see, if you met Mark, you'd understand it. There's no question. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to mitigate. No correlation, nothing. Just all we do is artichokes. That's it. That's it. We don't do nothing else. That's it. We don't cook anything else. We don't. No, we, do you want to add mayonnaise? We don't add mayonnaise to artichokes. We will not add mayonnaise to artichokes. And in a way, I told you, the long road, not the hack. We didn't hack the trade. The long road is the best. So in a way, I started liking your idea of hacking. And until I discovered over time that basically all the things I've enjoyed doing were the things I reverse hacked. So in other words, take the long road. Like right now, last week, I did 17 hours of cycling. So that's a long road. That's not a short road. Whereas when we met, I was looking for shortcuts. The university had no shortcuts. And he takes no shortcuts. So I mean, I've known you now for 15 years. I know I met you for 15, 16 years, and I think that shortcuts. And it was very good that he wrote that book for one reason, to put some story and narrative around the idea of precaution and tailor risk for society in general, and also because of fact-checking that document, because a lot of these stories are legends of this has happened, this has not happened. It was a perfect fact because he's fact-checking, reflecting, audited results and stuff like that. It was fact-checked, so sort of fact-checking the importance of tail-hedging for society. And that to me is greater than that details. It's like having finally a document, someone who bothered to look at the details and went through a, a rigorous... Uh, Many hours of interviews. Of interviews, <laughs> like interviews that. Reviewing documents yeah. and... Double-checking the facts yeah. versus anecdote. So what, yeah. what compelled you to write this book? Of all the things that you could write on, why did you choose to write this one? The birth of the idea of the book was in early 2020. And we all remember what was happening in early 2020. <laughs> the world seemed to be unraveling. You know, we had COVID, we had, you know, protests in the streets, we had extreme political uncertainty in this country, lots of things going on. So the first thing that happened was in April of 2020, came out that Universa had posted a three-month return of more than 4,000% on their positions, which was quite eye-catching and got a lot of news. I you know, reached out to Mark and was like, holy crap, what, you know, how do you guys do that? So that happened. And then I came across a paper that Nassim had co-written in January of 2020 about COVID. It was a glaring warning to the world that this virus was very deadly and people needed to take extreme precautions against what was coming, you know, by social distancing, other things, advice to politicians that they needed to be very aggressive about this. 
And it kind of occurred to me, I'd known Nassim and Mark for a long time, and I thought, we're in a period of extreme duress where lots of people are just kind of looking really bad. They're collapsing, they're losing money, they're making really bad decisions about COVID. Everybody is confused. These two guys seem to be coming out of this insane period looking very smart. So I thought, what is it about their worldview that allows them to go into a period that makes a lot of people look dumb, look very smart? <laughs> There's something about that that can map from what Universa does to what Nassim does. And it's, it's this view of the world of, you know, of black swans, of extreme events, of being prepared for them. And know what class of events you should be prepared against. So in other words, Which know been where they're going to be coming years. from. So, and, and, and pandemics, for me, was something I was working on since 2007. I even discussed it in the Black Swan. That pandem- what you have to worry about is a pandemic before a financial meltdown because of connectivity. We're no longer like in the 1800s where you, know, you could have a crisis here and not there. Everything's so connected. And it's exponential. In, in the financial world, and the same thing in the physical world. You see, the, the, the plague, the Great Plague, took something like 300 and some years to go from Constantinople to Northern England. 300 and some years. Today, it's just a weekend for the whole thing, to spread through the entire planet. Flying on Lufthansa. And Justinian's or... plague could not come to the Americas. There were no Air France or no ships at the time. And now, <laughs> visibly, they, they, it can't. So what I'm saying is that we are in a different environment. Just like culturally, things can spread. You have the Google effect. The same thing should apply to pandemics. So this is why we were working on, Yanir and I, and, and other people, on you pandemics. And particularly a fellow who is probably one of the smartest people I've ever met, who's a head of civil service in Singapore at a time and then retired later. And we were all obsessed with a great pandemic that would come. And we thought it was going to be Ebola. So, I mean, you had to worry about pandemics. And later on, I wrote a scientific paper, a scholarly paper on um, pandemics that I didn't really finish. And when a pandemic struck, we put it in nature physics, and it went counter. Nature physics is a very prestigious, as you can guess, uh, scholarly publication. And it silenced a lot of the epidemiologists who were like nitpicking, like, similar to economists, like nitpicking when, when you have the, what I call extreme properties. And at the time, in early 2020, you had a lot of epidemiologists, even the WHO, saying, we don't understand the nature of this pathogen. We need to wait and figure it out. The advice was... Kind of like the, um, what's the, the movie about climate change, Don't Look Up, where the, the president is saying, let's sit tight and assess. That's what the message was that we were getting from our health authorities in early 2020 was sit tight and assess. And that's a recipe for disaster. Nassim and his group were saying, take action now. If you wait around to sit tight and assess, you're screwed. Exactly. Because if it's you too must late. panic, panic early. Panic early. If you must and... panic, panic now. Black and finance and anything. You get, get out now. When it was easy, for example, to limit the flights out of uh, Wuhan, or it was, you didn't have to do lockdowns. You could do lockouts. I mean, and there were methods used by the Ottomans. You by know, the to, Ottomans? Yeah, to install the Ottomans and the Austrians had, you know, uh, the, the world was separate, but they had a lot of uh, traffic, and it went through what they call quarantine uh, spots. 
So that you would go into a uh, sort of hospital that has quarantine, and it's seven days one way, nine days the other day. And they would implement that the minute they smelled anything, right? And they had rules. If you come from India, it's more days. The Ottoman had these rules. Didn't come from the Ottoman. It's long experience dealing with with pandemics and how you stem them by stopping them at the border. These things were called lazarettos, and towns that did not have lazarettos. Venice, of course, their maritime power, they had lazarettos. They did very well. But uh, Marseille, France, was decimated because they didn't have lazarettos. So the lessons we need to learn repeatedly. We have to learn from history how people handle that. They cut it in the egg. That's it. Yeah. And it's easier to track people at the border. And you don't need to have quarantine. You can just test at the border. We didn't test the United States at the border until a year and one month into the pandemic. I don't understand. You have lockdowns, but you don't have lockouts. I mean, just test at the border. Just test people at the border. That would probably reduce. The fellow from Singapore was testing at the border. He said the way to control it is by knowing, especially testing people without their being aware of it. And they started the first thing where you detect temperature before temperature anybody gauging. knew about these temperature things secretly yeah. at Singapore. So it was. It I was guess really, they had a warm up with SARS, so they had the thermic. Exactly, they had. The, but they, he, he's the one who started it. And they were doing it secretly before it became public. So people wouldn't take antipyretic uh, drugs before landing. But so but, I mean, the whole idea is that you have to find fixes, and they're not complicated. And one analogy I'm going to give is the banking system, is that the banking system banks monstrously profitable enterprises. They make money off of your the float, the money you have left there, the check you didn't cash, right, or stuff like that. They make tons of money. And guess what? They blow up on the risk that bring them tiny amount of money. You see, selling that option that explodes every 10 years by saying, oh, no, we're in a different environment, it'll never happen. So sitting on dynamite. So that tiny, tiny, tiny tail option is what cost the banking system. They lost more money than ever made in history of banking in 1982, money center banks, that is, and did the same 2007. Okay, and a business that's usually profitable except for that tail event. So I'm saying that if you just remove that, banks would do well. It's the same thing in society. If you figure out how to remove that tail risk, sometimes not complicated. Well, let me ask, I'll stand in for the audience and also for myself and not to throw my audience under the bus, but what are the incentives or the circumstances that prevent them from taking a certain percentage of their assets and allocating it to something like a Universa so that they are less at risk in that way. They just don't have to do that. They could just avoid some trade. But let me explain to you the dynamics of the bonus system. This led to my book, Skin in a Game, later on. If you have skin in a game, you're going to worry about blow up because it's your money. If you don't have skin in a game, you're CEO of a company or you're a fund manager and any kind of financial venture, what is your incentive? Is to print good numbers because you don't pay for the downside. So you print good numbers, you collect money on the, on, on, on the profits. Annual bonus. And annual bonus. So this I call the generalized Bob Rubin trade. Generalized Robert Rubin trade. He made $100 million at Citibank or Citicorp, City something. Over 10 years, about 10 years, he collected $100 million in compensation. The bank was insolvent in 2008, near insolvent, if it weren't for the taxpayer, and it was the last minute. All he had to do was, uh, you know, write an apology letter. We didn't see these events. It was a black swan named after... A book by a very, very stubborn man. So something like that. So th that's all they have to do is say, I'm sorry, right? You keep your bonus. Yeah, you don't show business. up to work. So <laughs> this you can generalize. It's the same thing with supply chain. With a supply chain, a lot of firms concentrated everything on one supplier instead of being diversified. 
what did that lead to, right? Okay, better bottom line, but what I call pseudo-efficiency, because they're short that option, and it so happened that if their supplier is in Wuhan, guess what? You got a problem, all right? But that problem was not doesn't show in the numbers. It shows after it happens. It's the dark side of optimization. That, exactly, what I call pseudo-optimization. Like, uh, if you drive a Ferrari 500 kilometers per hour, you're not going to get there faster than if you ride a bicycle. Because all the time, you're never going to get there. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high-stakes gamble for your small business. So you want to be 100% certain that you have access to the most qualified candidates. That's why you should check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people for your team faster and for free. Add your job and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Tim. That's linkedin.com slash Tim to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Nassim, I have a question for you about a letter, and then I have a question for you about personalities, Scott. So temperament may be another way to put it. So is it true that you wrote a resignation letter your first day at a trading job and put it in your desk drawer? I read this on the internet. I don't know if it's true. You can't believe everything you read, but it was from The Guardian, so I thought it might be credible. One thing is actually, as I said, I recommend people do that. I wrote that, but not on the day I started. But I uh, recommended that people, because you, you feel relief when you do it, because then you can continue on your job without feeling like someone's controlling you. You've got the gun loaded. The whole idea of Plan B, how you thought about, about that problem. So you write the resignation letter and you don't date it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very fascinated by your ways of thinking, the way that you've embraced different philosophies. And you emailed me an aphorism in 2010, and uh, you can correct me if I get any of the wording wrong, but it stuck with me. This is in 2010, here's the aphorism or the quote. Robustness is when you care more about the few who like your work than the multitude who hates it, and then in parentheses, artists. Fragility is when you care more about the few who hate your work than the multitude who loves it, and then quotation marks, politicians. Have you always had that type of robustness or resilience against criticism? Is that something that is inborn? Maybe because I was never really someone who took you know, established ideas at face value. So you necessarily have, you know, violate some norms, some thinking norms. And often people protect those norms by, you know, attacking your reputation. And I realized that uh, while writing Fool by Randomness, I say, hey, you're saying that what I'm doing is random, we're using the wrong models, these don't work. So they attack your reputation. So I realized quickly, it was time that my reputation was going to be under some kind of fire. And I decided that, no, my reputation is how a few important people or people who know something about the subject view me. And it's not like I don't care about my reputation. I only care about my reputation in some circles. And it was people I can talk to 
to try to explain what it's about. And it has worked out. So, but if you have to go defend your reputation and you're doing the right thing, it's too much energy wasted and it's not going to help. Haters are going to hate. This resembles another aphorism inspired by Charlie Munger's, one of Charlie Munger's, is that you want to be the most ethical person where people think that you're corrupt, or you want to be the most corrupt person where people think that you're ethical. Make your choice and use it as guideline. It's the same thing. So, except that the, you know, there's something in between, is that there's some people I care about and I want them, you know, to not lose respect for me. Of course, you start with your mother, you have your children, or whatever, your family members. But there are also there's a lot of people on the planet, and I care about my reputation, but in these circles, not with the general public. So it allows you to take much, much more aggressive positions, which I've done over a long life. And Mark, for example, has a lot of enemies, and they're going to pick on something, and you don't care, so you're doing the right things. And how do you know you're doing the right thing? If people you respect approve of your action, not if the general public does. So that segues to my question for you, Scott, which is in the process of doing all these interviews and interacting with these various players on the field, these sort of practitioners, these investors and so on, have you identified any patterns that you think, whether nature or nurture, that seem to recur in people who are good at what you describe in the book i would say i mean across all three books that i've written which are generally focused on wall street trading hedge fund managers i've met a lot of hedge fund managers over the years none like this guy i have to say we'll probably come back to that but uh <laughs> i'm not I mean, i'll tell you i don't want to be identified as a fund manager yeah that's true um it's an but, identity thing Many are very focused on making a lot of money. That's a very common trait. I mean, Mark, he talked to me about how, you know, he grew up in the 80s. He identified with the Reagan era. It was a time, you know, Wall Street, greed is good. He told me, he's like, did I have a little greed in me? Yeah, I did. It was the 80s. And he grew up in a family that was, uh, his father was a, he was a minister in a church. He was sort of a hippie didn't believe in pursuit of wealth. Mark took the exact opposite view of that. That was constantly something driving him was the desire to, to make money. A lot of other hedge fund managers I've met over the years, just they have that drive. And it's something that many people look at these guys and think, you're worth a billion dollars, you're worth $2 billion, and yet you're a maniac. <laughs> you, you go into work every day and just go crazy. You drive all your employees crazy because you want to be richer than the next guy. I don't think Mark has that quite that sort of insane level of greed as some do. I'm, I've met Ken Griffin, founder of Citadel, disciple of Ed Thorpe, who we talked about, we might talk about later. Cliff Asnes, who is a, a stark enemy of... of yeah, a uh, friend, initially. <laughs> initially a friend. Yeah, and I, I have to say, Cliff is a is a nice guy when you when you meet him. Not he's, a nice guy, but is a fr- I've had friends who are not nice guys. He's he's also got a dark side. Also, somebody extremely focused on being wealthy. Very smart. They're all extremely smart, and I think that's in personalities. That's uh, I think one of the things that has helped drive my books is these are interesting people. You know, a lot of them are mathematicians, scientists. They come out of university with a, a different 
expertise in making money, but then they apply that on Wall Street to making money. So it's a combination of they have to be leaders. They are extremely driven. It baffles me because I'm not like that. You know, I have a degree in English, and I think that's actually why I sympathize with Nassim's writing so much is I came out of a tradition that, you know, I you know, love the works of Dostoevsky and existentialism. And, you know, one of my favorite books is The Irrational Man. And I came into Wall Street and started reading about how there's this belief that people are rational and the markets are rational and they are predictable because of this. And I thought that is just crazy. <laughs> you know, to me, I look at financial markets and I see black swans. I, I see fear and greed. That to me is what drives markets, not rational behavior, rational expectations. What are some of the things that make Nassim different or unique in those you've interacted with? I have some of my own questions and, and thoughts on this, but I, want, I would love to hear yours. He mentioned his contrarian nature. It's not a contrarian nature. It's uh, independence. I'll, so you're going to be in line with it. I mean, <laughs> people think I'm contrarian. I'm, I'm with the conspiracy theorists on many things. I'm against them on many other things. Some are just contrarian because they have a father problem. Okay, so, so to me, a contrarian is, is, is an explicit, explicit rather than an uh, attribute. So but the other thing is, I thought it was going to be about me. It should be about the idea, the precaution. And He's a lot more interested in literature and philosophy and not financial markets. It's just no, this no, thing it's, that it's very, drives him. He doesn't look at the stock market page you know, every day like some people do. He's no, no, you, you have to figure out what people envious of. So, you know, if you're in a hedge fund business and, and you have $500 million in a bank and someone else has $600 million, you're going to be envious of that person. I was always envious of people who had more erudition than me. Okay, so more erudites. And you realize that that's what makes me tick. Being envious is not good, you see. But at the same time, if you figure out who you tend to envy. It's not, I don't believe in this, as you say, oh, people having enough. There's someone here from East Hampton, the fellow who wrote Cash 22. A lot of interesting folks out there. Yeah, yeah he met a financier at a time for hedge funds. And uh, the financier said, what is it that about you, because he was an author, a very successful one, what is it that distinguishes you from me? You know, look, he told him, I know the meaning of enough. <laughs> so in other words, you know you're upper bound. And effectively, I don't play that game. I say, you know, there's a meaning. I am literally, and I say envious of people who are erudite. Like if someone knows Latin uh, very well, I'm, I'm envious. If someone knows Sanskrit, I'm envious, right? So that's, and I discovered that early on. So I made money on Wall Street because I wanted to make money on Wall Street, but I didn't think it was worth the effort. And luckily, with a combination with Universa, I had so much leverage, you know, was marked on all the stuff, so the spillover on me was more than satisfactory. So I have, knock on wood, a lot more than, uh, than I wished. So part of the reason I'm asking, we're talking about the ideas, but the person who's acting as the vessel or communicator of these ideas, the developer of these ideas, is integrally related to, I think, the sort of totality that I want to explore. So part of what interests me about your story and your thinking is how various inputs have impacted your thinking around not just markets, but other things. So for instance, like the Stoics and the 
Seneca the Younger and so on, or other philosophical inputs, did those come early and then aid you, you think, in your career when you were active in the markets? Or did those come later and you sort of always had a deep interest, but were able to explore them at a later no, point? No, actually, I, was, I started liking the Stoics. And all those people I've talked about, I liked them much earlier on in my life. But I went overboard for every idea I've had. I did the exact opposite of what one should do is like, if you had an idea, say, oh, I had this idea, right? Is go look, because I don't consider myself so different from others. And then particularly when you look at history, you know, so many tens and thousands of survive, scholars surviving works. So I went back and figured out of the scholars, of these scholars, who had similar ideas or who preceded the ideas. So, and who started thinking like that? So I went into the, the empirics, the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, Greco-Levantine, uh, Greco-Roman, mostly using Greek language uh, thinkers, and then, of course, and to others about this uh, fundamental skepticism, because I noticed a lot of people are skeptical, particularly conspiracy theorists. They're skeptical of small things, but not about big ones, <laughs> all right? They get taken for a ride. It's find me a conspiracy theorist or find me someone who's naturally skeptic of all things, and I'll show you a turkey. So I wanted to find people who are fundamentally skeptic, being skeptic and being skeptic about important things, not about small things. Because what would be an example of a big thing? A big thing, like, let me give you an example. I wrote a paper, a paper, it was never ended up in a book on uh, the stock market and religion, all right? It's called The Bishop and The Economist. And I said that those who are skeptical about the existence of God and non-existence of God are skeptical about religious matters, typically tend to be complete suckers when it comes to stocks. They believe in the stock market or believe in some kind of pseudo-scientific theory on whatever it is, okay? So, but they don't believe in religion and the reverse, all right? And people who are religious, typically, they're harder and, and there's some, I, I don't know, research on that. There's a guy called Barlahmi, Harlahmi, Barhalahmi, I think, who did some studies about skepticism. People go to religion about affairs, skepticism where it matters. And I wrote about it, I think, in the Black Swan. So skepticism where it matters. And I noticed that a lot of these big skeptics were not skeptical of God and things you can't do anything about. They were skeptical of the charlatan. They're skeptical of things, of someone trying to take advantage of you. That's where you exercise your skepticism. Among the great skeptics, there is a Bishop Uwe. He was probably one of the second most erudite person of his time. Second was this guy called Scaliger. He, the guy is phenomenal. He could translate into Arabic. He was uh, Roman authors, Latin authors, and vice versa. Okay, Scaliger, Scaligeri. There are a lot of the uh, Pierre Bale. Pierre Bale has you know a lot of works. He's one of those uh, skeptics. Hume was one of the skeptics, but these people preceded Hume. Hume is known because he wrote in a language of a country that had a lot of ships and a lot of trade, you know, across the world. But a lot of these ideas came from uh, groups of people in France or among Protestants in France and uh, what's called the Anafideists. originates, of course, in the Levant. And of course, you have the great Al-Ghazel, the Islamic theologian, Iranian origin, who definitely was showing you how, how all these arguments are weak, you know, could dismantle arguments by showing you could be skeptical about, about, about human arguments about God. Okay, a lot I more think than Spinoza arguments. is coming out of that. 
Spinoza came, very skeptical. he was skeptical about the text that was, these people say, okay, transcend these texts, okay, and be skeptical about things that really matter. And there was actually a skeptical school of medicine, practicing medicine. So what, I went back through history, every time I've had an idea, I would go back and see in history who preceded me. And sure enough, I haven't done enough because every year or so I get a letter from someone, hey, how come you missed so-and-so, right? Okay, and, and sure enough, I go back to the inserto and I add that person. And this is why it, it has survived, the uh, five books, the inserto. But we're not here to talk about these five books, but this book. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about whatever comes up, but I do want to hop over to you, Scott, and maybe discuss something that you had shared with me as a possible bullet in the prep stages for this conversation, which is related to polycrisis and uh, the new age of crisis. What does this refer to? It's the subtitle of my book. Most people have focused on the first part of the subtitle is how Wall Street traders make billions. Second part is in the new age of crisis. I feel like that hasn't gotten that much attention, but part of what I'm trying to argue is that we are seeing a magnification of extreme events accelerating and overlapping. There's an economist, Adam Tooze, who's coined a phrase called the polycrisis, which he says these crises that are happening on a global scale are interacting in ways that the, the whole becomes greater and worse you know, than the sum of the parts. So you've got pandemics, you've got economic instability, financial crises, climate change, which is a big focus of mine in my daily job at the journal, which I think is sort of the big one in terms of the ever magnification of crises that we're seeing. We're seeing it in the news every day. And what I wanted to do in the, in the book is look at several of these crises and think about how we should be approaching them in a sort of a, a risk mitigation standpoint using ideas from people like Nassim. I think that the central idea was, as I was talking about the germ of the idea of the book was, can you take ideas that were created on Wall Street for risk mitigation and borrow those and apply those to other forms of risk management? And what Nassim and Mark do is they think about the extreme events and how to protect against them. Nassim co-wrote a paper about this exact issue called the precautionary principle. It delineates specific categories of risk that you should take the precautionary principle and apply it to. He has some specific ideas, and he can talk about it way better than I can. But you know, these are things that can be global, that represent systemic risk to humanity, things that could be exponential. And must be fat-tailed, must be fat-tailed, or exponential. Yeah, ex exponential, yeah. Thing, things that have these properties that you need to take extreme precaution and not take that risk. Basically, don't play Russian roulette with these risks. And that's kind of how the book was structured, was first looking at the, the growth of the strategy with Mark and Seem, and then moving on to these other things that the world is facing and seeing if we could think about ways to protect against these risks, something like climate change. You don't really want to mess with that. You know, it's a bit too late. We still have, but there's still lots of things that we can do. And that's, I think, the book in a nutshell 
I was going to mention earlier when you asked me about the birth of the idea of the book, when I first suggested it to Nassim and Mark, Nassim said, no way, I'm not, <laughs> I have no interest in, in doing that with you. It took a while. And then you were like, I have these black and white photos you might want to take a look at. So how'd you convince him to do <laughs> it? <laughs> it was, uh, it warmed down. I think it was more warmed Mark down. put the screws on. No, no, and, no. Let me tell you what happened. I, I, <laughs> I actually don't know. I know that I eventually he said I extracted the promise talk. from him uh-huh. to not be portrayed, to mention that I don't self-identify as a finance person. And once he made that promise, okay, I said, okay, now we can talk because finance represents a significant part of my life. But I this has want- been a theme with Nassim ever since I've known him. So to me, it was like the identity piece. Yeah, that he's, uh, he's an not a traitor, and I and I thought I agreed because it's true. <laughs> it's he's not been a traitor for a long, long time, and it's obvious what you know where his interests are. And what would it? I have to ask. So, what would it mean or feel like for you to be broadly identified as a finance person, but to think of yourself more as a scholar? I wrote about it in, in Food by Randomness. George Soros, and I met George Soros, one of the persons on the planet who impressed me the most, one of those. And I realized that George Soros missed his career. He wanted to be a philosopher and a thinker. Okay, he ended up making money and spending too much time in it and wrote drunk articles and books, or at least one book. So, yeah, it was not, it was not, you know, it was, it was, it was not, not what he wanted out of life. Okay, he's a middle European intellectual who would have liked to be remembered as someone for well ideas. And he envied, of course, Karl Popper, who he claims was his professor, but it was beyond. So I wrote about him for my randomness. I said, here's this fellow who is say, okay, but he also does to distinguish himself from other financiers. He's also or has intellectual uh, aims. I said, I don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. I want to be someone who produces intellectual work and who happens to have had contact with reality <laughs> thanks to trading and thanks to uh, Mark and the guys. I still have some contact with reality, but I'm not cut for that. When I was writing Food by Random, so it was 2019, that I realized I was not, I don't want to be like Soros. Because unlike Buffett and the other people, Soros had an identity crisis. He wants to be known as a philosopher. Okay. That's not, you know, and life, it's a life to control of him. He didn't Buffett told me he wanted to write a book. Um, When I, I used to cover him and uh, I was leaving the journal at the time to write my second book. And he was like, oh, I really always wanted to write a book. I never got around to it. So there you go with, you know, the Oracle of Omaha. Yeah, he wants to be thought of as an intellectual too. But well, I mean, it's just not the same. But but the the, 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 the sage Soros, of Omaha so. has something that I didn't put in a precautionary principle, but that's probably very inspiring. Because he understood the asymmetry. If, yes. if you say no a thousand times, he says no. If he doubts, and that's the precautionary principle. Could you uh, give people the precautionary principle one on one just to back up? Okay, yeah. let me ask you. You're uh, Tim Ferriss flying to go to Mexico, you go to JFK, and they tell you that you have uncertainty about the skills of the pilot. But we think he's good, but there's uncertainty. Do what do you do? You're not going to get on that plane. I'm not going to get on okay, that plane. Okay, life is too uh, important for me. Mm-hmm. 
you'll take a train, you'll take a, you walk, maybe you ride a bicycle, you know, take a few months, but you're not going to get on that plane. Okay, you change your plans and say, okay, there are other plans or other countries too, and other planes. So that's Warren Buffett and his investments. And that's my precaution principle, the idea that there's an asymmetry, is that there's uncertainty about certain things is not good. So the climate, for example, if you have uncertainty about the climate, stop these models, all right? Just don't pollute, you get, or, or, or try to use something else, try to mitigate. So that's the first part of it. And people get it right away when I give them a story of a plane, or I take water, so this is a glass of water on the table. There's no evidence that it's poisonous. Would you drink it? No, I mean, the there's wording no would, evidence. Would yeah. spook me. There's no evidence that. So, but when you tell them, hey, you know, you should worry about GMOs, they say there's no evidence they're harmful. Say, yeah, but there's no evidence that they're not harmful. Okay. So the asymmetry, where you put the burden of the asymmetry on, that's the precautionary principle. But then what we did is we noticed a lot of people, in fact, it was a counter precautionary principle because a lot of people were invoking it for nothing to say we're going to have a non-naive precautionary principle by delineating the areas where you should exercise such precaution systematically as a planet or as a communal group. And what are they? Number one, you need fat tails. Now, what does fat tail mean? Let me explain to you. Let's say you go to planet Mars, okay? Elon would help you get there. You have connection. And you have no news from Earth. And then on the way back, you hear that a billion people died. Okay. Which one is more likely to be the cause? Ebola or uh, car accidents? Ebola. Now, on a given day, if you hear Joe Smith died today, what's more likely, Ebola or a car accident? Car accident. Car accident. That's fat tails. Fat tails. You have to identify things backwards. If you hear of a big thing, where did it come from? And you hedge against these, okay? So they have different dynamics because they scale differently. So in the black swan, I show the difference with the following metaphor. There are environments where you may have a large deviation, but it's not going to be consequential because it can't be very big. So if I take a thousand people and put them on a scale and add to that sample, the largest human being you can find on the planet, how much of the total will he or she represent? Takes 30 basis point, nothing, okay? And then if you go from 1,000 to 10,000, it dilutes completely. So you can have a tail event that's not going to be consequential. Extremistan is different. Extremistan, if you gather 1,000 people and add to that sample the wealthiest person on the planet, how much of the total will he or she represent? All of them. There'd be a running error. Basically there'd be a running error. I mean, there'd be on average on the planet Earth, right? There'd be in total, maybe they have two or three million in total, and then you have hundred and some billion right next to it. So this is where you have to focus on environments that produce these fat tails. And this is what Mark did with Universa. Universa is named after the universal mechanism that generates fat tails. Okay, that was that was the name of, of, of the car. So everything we're in it basically intellectually everything, all the details. So we have to identify what produces fat tails in the financial markets and why it's getting thicker. Fat tails means that you have the greatest contribution comes from smallest number of events. So concentration, like for example, you have a lot of people, all the wealth come from one person. It so happened that under fat tails, the models 
that we use for risk management on Wall Street are BS. This is why I have a lot of enemies. This is why I have to protect myself against reputational damage, all right? So because all the economists say to me, all their models are based on, on that. So what, what is fat-tailed? Practically everything in socioeconomic uh, life is fat-tailed. What is not fat-tailed? Number of calories we're going to eat tonight. How many calories can we have in one day, tonight? We can only go for the gold, I'd say. I'd say we could each down a few thousand calories a piece. Two thousand, two thousand. Yeah. Say I go three thousand for me, all right? I can play with fat and stuff. Three thousand. That's nothing. How many calories do I consume a year? Yeah. It's Not a single day is going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Can you lose all your money in a single day? Yes. There we go. So you have two environments, and they're separable. So this is why the universal approach, it makes things separable, right? The fact that you can identify what is fat-tailed, you identify where models don't work, you can identify where you have to understand, and we have to use more refined tools to figure out stuff. And then also, in fatness of tails, number one, pandemics. Number two, wars. I've got close, close second. Wars and pandemics, okay? And so you can use that to prioritize application of the precautionary principle? Or? Bingo. And, and let me tell you how. For example, if cancer is thin tails, nuclear, thin tail. If you can diversify it, it's centails. If you can have uh, a thousand nuclear reactors, all right, if you can insure it uh, rather than one, it is centail. If you can insure it, centail. If you can't insure it, non-insurable, fat tails. So there are a lot of things that are believed to be very risky, but they're not like nuclear for me. I mean, not for my, one of my co-authors, but I'll settle it with him with a beer or uh, what's it, English... Uh, Rupert Reed, Rupert Reed is a yeah. co-author of the, uh, and, the, and also the, yeah. a major character in the book. Uh, yeah. He's a very environmentally focused uh, person. He's a leader in yeah. climate these days. And uh, yeah, he, he told me that's one thing that he disputed the precautionary principle paper with Nassim. Which was, was written with him first, uh, drinking, you know, single malt scotch in an English, <laughs> in in an English uh, pub. In somewhere in northern England, in East Anglia, where the portions are like smaller than the, what they give you for espresso in Italy, you know, the espresso, <laughs> like you sip them. So, the, the, so we had to have like, again, it's like with, the, with you, you and the eggs, all right? So <laughs> to go back to the insurable, we don't have to worry about it. And a very simple example I give that when Ebola started, or later on when COVID started, people were using the arguments, yeah, you know, 3,000 Americans die every year drowning in a swimming pool. That was something by the guy called Dr. Phil. Should we shut down pools? At a time, less than a thousand Americans had died of, uh, of COVID. And then I followed this, presented the following argument. I said, if I die drowning in a swimming pool, my neighbor drowning in her or his swimming pool has not changed. If I die of COVID, the odds of my neighbor dying of COVID has increased. So you have that transmission that makes it fat-tailed that mechanism of transmission. So this is why you cannot compare as basically the press in the beginning, the so-called established press, was against our uh, ideas. Because it was racist against China, they could not distinguish between risks of car accidents and heart attacks and risks of things spreading. This is why, for example, I am in favor of vaccines, the risk is entailed, and I'm against GMOs because they spread in the environment. Let me ask you a question so I better understand. So, so with the precautionary principle, with the example that you gave of the water, there's no evidence to suggest this water is poisonous. In my mind, I was wondering if somebody could use a similar argument against 
a new vaccine. Let me tell you what. The problem is we're not with the vaccine. There are two things. Number one, if someone has, takes a vaccine and, and you have part of the population that doesn't have the vaccine, it's not affected. But there's something more central here. You're comparing two risks. We have COVID versus a vaccine. So you have to compare. And we know a lot more about genetic stuff in an individual than we know about how genes spread in a population. And that vaccine story, basically in the beginning, say, why don't you exercise the precaution principle? I say, I have to worry about a pandemic a lot more. Yeah, in comparison. In comparison comparison to to that. Plus, very quickly, after about a billion people had jabs, I was initially skeptical about a vaccine in the sense that let's wait and see. The story is, are there other ways? Because I'm really worried about COVID. And people don't understand that the argument they use exposed COVID is much more dangerous than you think. And the vaccine is what made it tolerable. So when they had a billion jabs, I showed the following thing, that everything that's genetic, the number of mutations to take place to cause a problem, they have a variance. And if they have a variance, it's as follows. You would see already in a billion people, because it's so much from a scrutiny, you would see that tail risk. To give you an example, Hiroshima, Okay, they say on average it took 10 years to, or eight years, whatever, to get cancer. No, we saw it in three months, four months. If you focus on the tail, same as Kuru. Kuru takes about 10 years on average, the median, to get Kuru from exposure. But you have... What is Kuru? Yeah, I don't know. Kuru is, is uh, bad cow disease. Mm. Things for which we have data of, of early exposure and then early disease, only onset of disease. So I looked at vaccines with all these conspiracy theorists and everything, and the focus is enormous, and we can see anything. But it followed that class of risks where, you know, you have to have mistakes going to take place in a genetic or DNA, or this is where after a billion jabs, I said, okay, I'm going to go for it, okay? And visibly, the risk is much smaller. So risk may exist, but it's much smaller than the risk of COVID. And plus, there are a lot of numbers about COVID people weren't aware of. Number one, something that people didn't think about immediately, is that COVID raised the risk of death, your multiple of deaths, beyond the age of 30, because we don't have uh, much of an effect for younger people, or we don't think so. The force of mortality of the... Like all-cause mortality? No, it went up uh, from COVID across the board in the same way. Say, for example, you're exposed to COVID, you have 10% chance of mortality, 1.1%, 10% increase in all cause mortality. It's the same for young people. So, past the age of 30, it's about the same number. So, it could be 20% more depending on your exposure. So, saying it's an old people problem, they were dying as a multiple of their mortality rate. So, I took the social security numbers just to you know, say, okay, it's not my numbers, social security number, look at it. If you're a female, 30-year-old, you have 1 in 700 chance of dying. Male, 1 in 400 chance of dying. That goes up by 10%, okay, with COVID. If you're 80 years old, you have 1 in whatever, it goes up by 10%. Or something, if I say, I mean, depend, the 10% depends on the exposure period. But it was almost flat across the population. So I said, okay, do you want to increase your children's chance or young people's chance of death by X percent? Plus the effect it has on years lost and life expectancy is much more dramatic for a 40-year-old than it is for a 90-year-old. 
So this is how I looked at it. And of course, by then we had 8 billion traps. So we had the answer. How do you think about, say, GMOs? This is something I actually don't know much about, but in terms of the precautionary principle and risk assessment, how do you think of... I mean, a vaccine is to counter a disease. GMO is just like manipulation that people said, oh, we've always manipulated animals, all right? But that's not true. It's sort of like there's a difference between flying and walking, okay, and the risk you can encounter, you see? The GMO, the way it would, the gene would spread through the environment, uncontrolled spread is uh, a fat tail, whereas selective breeding is very slow. As Rupert Reed said, he cited, I don't know who said, that if your horse is blind, make sure you ride it slowly. So there are two classes, like Mediocristan, Extremistan. Mediocristan, like calories versus Extremistan, stock market. Selective breeding versus uh, GMOs. I mean, you're jumping so many steps with GMOs. So it's a different class of risk. Right, because of the risk of, of uncontrolled spread. Exactly. And then, and then you have a blight that spreads like COVID did, the whole planet. And we're much more connected than before. Plus, they have never done a proper risk study on GMOs, on the environment. Not one. They're saying there's no evidence they're harmful. Look, people are eating it. I mean, I'm a scientist. I like to see randomized control studies. I like to see things. I like to see something a little more formal than, than claims. And, and then you don't realize what happened. No matter what you say about Monsanto, I think would be a, an underestimation of their evil attribute because they really wrecked science because they had groups of people who would go and intimidate scientists and people on salary. Scientists are so afraid of losing their job, losing their postdoc position. They would contact your boss. They would contact practically everyone. They did that to me, but visibly. <laughs> it was like water on the duck's back, right? Why'd they do it to Hundreds you? of letters to the university. Because of your commentary on GMOs? Because exactly. of the because of that paper. paper. That paper. And then uh, somehow I used the R word in the past. In French, it's, uh, it says just, it's like, uh, it says like you're a slow thinking person. <laughs> the R word. I got it. I got and it. then they would, they would have Took 15 letters from mothers of children with special needs yeah. who don't like that a professor at NYU would use such a language that's insulting to my. So the point is, when they showed me the letters, like different names, but it was like written almost on the same letterhead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, it was the, and the language was the, the same. So, so I realized. There was a smear campaign. Plus, there's a lot of other things they did. Petitions, all kind of things, and online harassment. But with me, it didn't work. With others, but the people they select for these things are usually dumb. Think about it. Who would engage in smear campaigning? The brightest person you know? <laughs> no. Okay, so, so you can play with them. So what Monsanto did is to cover up for whatever they're doing via intimidation. They disrupted science. And they made people believe that, hey, we have no evidence, I'm doing science, this person is confabulator or whatever, it's called the Luddite. Okay, yeah, you'd have been against the fire. <laughs> no, it's not the anti same thing. Anti-science was a... Anti-science, because science, anti-science. And usually they're never used by scientists. And they had a few scientists who knew nothing about risk and probability. So that was... But anyway, we had fun fighting. It was a long fight. But then what happened, they were bought by Bayer, and Bayer is a little more civilized than Monsanto, and then all that disappeared. So if we, if we zoom out and look at the precautionary principle, how could that be applied on a 
policy or regulatory level? Like if someone's listening to this and they agree with the premise and they say this makes a lot of sense, how could we implement this on a larger scale level such that we are less vulnerable to say possible risks? Uh, well, actually in Europe, the precautionary principle is widely adapted among international agencies and regulatory agencies. I think that the advance that Nassim and his co-writers made on the principle is, is that it, it can be kind of fuzzy. So it can be seem to be subjective about how you are applying the principle. I think what they did was create a category grouping, which can be used to designate things. And, you know, you could have, I don't know, you could have panels that would look at it using these categories. But I, I think if it were adapted more widely among regulatory agencies in the United States, just as a principle, as a way to think about certain kinds of risks, then it could be more generally applied and useful. Like I said, in Europe, they do use it. GMOs are not widely adapted in Europe and primarily because of the precautionary principle. And, and they have lobbyists in Europe. I know because they all attack me. I mean, for so I see them online all the time, coming from Europe, Italy, for example, Italy of all places, you know, that place would damage it big time uh, reputationally. If you had GMOs in Italian food in Italy, there's no tourism, but they still have people there trying to sell, particularly that when you sell GMOs, you also can use more Roundup. <laughs> there's a secondary effect on, on the soil. And, and it's the same people who are producing both, right? So one could be an excuse to sell the other. To me, one of, one of the really interesting aspects of, of the precautionary principle is the notion of uncertainty. So, you know, when you look at climate change, the uncertainty of models has been used as a cudgel by the deniers and by the fossil fuel industry for decades that there's a level of uncertainty in these predictions. We don't really know how bad it's going to get. You know, we really, we, you know, we need to sit tight and assess the risks that we're facing. And what they showed is that uncertainty is a reason for taking precaution. Because if, if you are uncertain about the potential future destruction of or massive degradation of the biosphere because of polluting it with carbon dioxide and methane and, and other greenhouse gases, Maybe you should stop doing that or realize that you're actually taking a risk. You don't, you, you don't know what the risk is. So uncertainty is actually a reason for precaution rather than just throwing caution to the wind and just saying, well, we don't know. So, you know, what the hell? But let me tell you, ironically, what happened to me the first time I formulated the argument. It's actually in the Black Swan, second edition, and I was with David Cameron on stage. And I said, we have uncertainty about these models. So avoid these models and just don't pollute. In a paper I re later rewrote with my friend Yanir and, and others by saying the more uncertainty there is in a model, the more you have to be. It's just like the more uncertainty you have about the skills of the pilot, the more you're, cautious you, know, you should be. Exactly. You, you should take another plane. So what happened the next day, 20 newspaper articles in the UK called Taleb, a black swan author, is a climate denier, okay, trying to convince Cameron probably had the cottage industry of modelers who would be out of business if you follow these principles. So it's not like we got heat, a lot more heat from the left than from the right. But why were they calling you a denier if you said... I mean, they, they, they used me verbatim without following the whole argument. 
And they say, well, he said that. And I basically named them by names, and I went after every one of the 20 journalists. I wrote to every journal, explaining to them what I said, and I say they cited me out of context, and I wrote a chapter in Skin in the Game about how one should debate, an honorable debate is, is where you represent the person's opinion, like what Karl Popper would always very faithfully represent the person's the position, and then attack it, whereas they were taking... Uh, selected cherry picking, cherry picking and from creating it. a straw and man argument. Exactly. And as Fourier would say, give me a letter written by an honest man and I'll get him hung. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem that, that you have with the climate is that a lot of people have an interest in complicating the, the story. In fact, you just say, okay, let's forget about fossil fuel. Let's pollute with other things. It's just like I say, if a drug is dangerous, I say the danger is in the dose. Sorry? The danger is Dangerous in the dose. The danger is in the dose. It's non We put that in a precautionary principle. The non-linearity, the convexity, that's the theme of anti-fragile, the convexity. That because you're, you're uh, dosing the atmosphere exactly. with carbon dioxide, you're going to end up with a very bad outcome eventually. Exactly. So, so give me, let me give you an example. To go back to before, when we were talking about when I used GMO versus selective breeding, tell you why speed and fragility. An example I use in uh, an anti-fragile. If I bang a car against a wall at one mile per hour, a hundred times, okay, it's not going to be the risk of you banging at once at a hundred miles per hour. Okay, so this is where, where if you have acceleration of harm, like if I jump 10 feet, I'm harmed more than twice than if I jump five feet. So we showed where in the presence of acceleration, what to do. And that part of the paper was never understood because people don't understand convexity. Although Antifragile is currently my most successful book, it's read more in 2023 than it was in 2013, the second year of publication. So the same with Black Swan. I know Black Swan is read more now than it was a year after publication. But in spite of all of these arguments being presented, people couldn't grasp our paper. And I discovered why. Something I figured out only recently. When I talk to young people, 23, 24, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Their parents are the problem. So what is convexity? Just for to, to, to refresh. Okay, so, and again, we're going to talk about Universa or other things embedded in a Universa story, but that the convexity is if the market goes down 10%, you make a million dollars. If it goes down 20%, you make $10 million, you have convexity. And this is what everything is based on. Well, the general idea, sorry, yeah, they would call it convex and concave. And probably the best illustration is how we fared in 2007. And I explained it in the Black Swan right before it happened. I looked at the risk of Fannie Mae by a deserter who, you know, left Fannie Mae and uh, distributed the risk reports. Okay. We looked at the risk of Fannie Mae and noticed that if the market, say, an interest rate or mortgage premium or something like that is increased by 100 basis points, they lost X. 200 basis points, 20 times X. 300 basis points, <laughs> I said, they're sitting on a barrel of dynamite in the black swan. 2007, five months later, okay, they started going on and eventually they lost the book, $600 billion losses. Why they said, oh, they reacted to me by saying, oh, we monitor our risk, we have 15 PhDs, okay? We have 15 PhDs, 15 trillion PhDs. It's not gonna help you <laughs> with this. So this is convexity on the losses, and we're doing the reverse 
on the profit side. And there have been some, a uh, lot of people get upset the way Mark presents the numbers that he writes to his investors. You know, you file with the SEC, you have all the numbers are available. They tell them, listen, we made 4,000% on your maximum loss, okay? Whereas if you invest in the S&P, you can lose 100% of what you have. So the return you have on that maximum possible potential loss. In other words, when you go to bed in the evening, all you could lose is that much and how much these options were explosive on their maximum loss, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was asymmetry. The, sorry? The asymmetry. That was the asymmetry, the 4,000 some percent. Uh, but, but that's not the first time it happened. Nobody, nobody noticed. When I was trading and I discovered that with, uh, before the crisis of 1987, there was a plaza accord where a bunch of people got together uh, secretly on a Sunday and then and made an announcement we're going to support the currencies against the dollar. The dollar is too expensive. You had a huge move. I was at work. We had a tiny risk. There was an explosion in my PNL. Okay, they brought detectives or inspectors to figure out why the PNL is so large for that so little risk. Because you had your maximum risk, all you could lose is say uh, X thousand dollars, and the PNL exploded. So that's how it it's works. They, the book, couldn't believe, it's a, they couldn't believe it, right? So I. Decided, okay, I'm going to make a living Now, when you say that. exploded, this is in a, in a bad way or a good way? Good. Good, good way, yeah. I see. The PL. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, it, the, the PL was too large for the risk. They say we're supposed to you only said take. So computers say, couldn't handle the numbers. Yeah, no, so, that so was for it, them. No, no, it's, like the it's, it's high it, risk, high reward. How are you getting low risk, high reward? No, no. They is said you made too much money. You got to be taking risk. You're hiding that's what, something that's from what, us. That's what I mean. And the computers would take something like um, 10 hours. At a time to compute the PNL, <laughs> at the end of the PNL, you see. So every time they said go redo it and stuff like that, and and I was frustrated because they couldn't understand it. <laughs> they couldn't understand it. But uh, this is uh, the same thing happened this to Mark. This is the trade that they did for, you know, that's the beginning of the trade that became Empirica, Universa, something like. I remember uh, when I was talking to Mark back in two thousand eight. I think he back he would never tell me this now <laughs> but i was trying to figure out how they had such incredible returns and he gave me an example of a trade that they made and i forget the timing but it was like a july 2008 s&p 500 put option betting on a 20 percent decline in, in the s&p 500 bought for two bucks after the crash he sold it for 60 bucks that's the kind of convex exponential return that you do not get in any other kind of trading and you take that two dollar option and you magnify it over millions and millions of dollars you get four thousand percent return yeah but they're even more dramatic than two dollars becoming sixty dollars because there was you always look at how people have lost money because when you read you know reports and stories they hide the losses because nobody's going to write a book on how they lost all this money and it's always invariably the same there was a story of volume investors, I think. They're selling out-of-the-money options on gold. And they're selling for $0.05 cents and end up have to buy them for $40. And then there's a Niederhofer story, same story, where he liquidated and um, when he blew up, I mean, he blew up many times, but, but, but one time, well, you can see the prices. He sold them for $0.05, 10 cents, And then he had to buy them back, and I was buying them back to $40. That's what I noticed. It's with with selling volatility. Selling out of money, uh, uh, tails, selling something, uh, rare events, you know, and you don't need a large deviation. Just people panic, they pay anything because, or sometimes they're forced to. 
because the 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 uh, you know the the clearing houses or counterparties cannot handle the risk. They say we're going to close you out. Sorry, and you close out. Hey, there's no liquidity. It's like the famous saying: sell everything. And then the clerk, I told you sell everything. Why are you not moving? He said, please tell me to whom, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I say. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Let me ask a question that's been sort of uh, percolating in my mind, and it may not be a good question, but I'm curious. You mentioned Soros, and I don't know that much about Soros. I've never met him, but I want to say Soros is also known as the man who broke the Bank of England, right, or the uh, yeah, the British pound. So one of my questions is: in this increasingly interconnected world, where the equivalent of the Black Plague, whatever that might be, and it could be in pandemic form or otherwise, instead of taking 300 years is over a weekend in terms of spread and things are so interdependent. Is there the temptation and the risk of investors catalyzing more crises or different types of crises, not just, I don't want to say being spectators, but there's, there's one thing to have an investment methodology that has certain premises and so on that then results in in a windfall return at a certain point in time with tail events. But I'm wondering if, I mean, it seems like there are hedge fund managers, I'm not saying this is what you are, there are investors out there and hedge fund managers who take very active roles in companies, let's just say that they want to take a uh, position and activist investors and so on. And I'm wondering if investors will be able to do more damage as the world becomes more interconnected. I think that it's possible. I see the damage coming from negligence and bad risk taking that ends up creating a contagion effect. Just the same thing that we saw in not among investors, but like in the banking. Yeah, banking or hedge funds or crypto. I think that financial markets over the past 20 years and increasingly with electronic trading are more and more interconnected than ever. You know, this is something I got in my second book about high frequency trading is how you could see the potential risk of some giant move in, a, say, a derivative contract or an index, something overseas, because trading machines are correlating all these assets globally, electronically at hyperspeeds, microsecond speeds, that you could see something move very rapidly into all sorts of asset classes in a way that is impossible to stop because it's so fast. That could be triggered by a trader or it could be triggered by a computer just going bananas. We have noticed very early on in the 90s a phenomenon that international diversification was no longer diversification. Why? Because of that integration. Globalization did a lot of good things, pulled people out of poverty. But a lot of things happened with it. Number one, you can't diversify anymore. Because if stocks collapse here, as we saw in 87, collapse everywhere for large deviation and now for mild deviation starting in the 1990s. And also, I mean, the funding disappears everywhere or comes everywhere. So this property of globalization is similar to the one that came with it, which is that we're going to have shortages and then gluts. Now in a phase of in between shortage and glut, but shortages can be very deep where containers go up 10 times in a shipping container. And you're going to have a lot of the reverse happening because I've never seen shortages without gluts 
I've seen gluts without shortages, but never shortages without glut. But they're very deep. We didn't have that before. We all depend on the world's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's like a large movie theater with the same door. You see, it's the size of the door that matters when you want to get out, not the size of the theater. So the supply chain is narrow and getting narrower, and it's got narrower. Now probably it will expand and branch out and will have a better networks. But people would not understand that. This is, this is why people like to sell tail events, because it costs money to diversify your sources of, uh, you know, whatever, and your supply. And it also costs money to hedge tail risk, or you think it costs money. You have the illusion. And sure enough, you realize that if a hedge is expensive, you know, think of absence of hedge. <laughs> how much more expensive it is. Mm -hmm. so, so what's your perspective on the capacity of investors to catalyze greater risk? Not necessarily the systemic risk-taking, although this is certainly a factor of, say, the banking sector or fill-in-the-blank, but very well-funded investors who are looking for black swan or black swan-like opportunities their ability to create a self-fulfilling prophecy in a, in a sense. As they say, predictions are self-fulfilling and also self-canceling. You see, early on, the self-fulfilling, people get on the bandwagon, and then sure enough, that's how sort of the glut takes place after the shortage. But one thing, you know, that's quite, one should realize with the structure of the world in which we live, that although history is not an indicator for many things, because we live in, times of different connectivity and stuff like that, the rules of what can go wrong are very simple. It's like as with pandemics, the Ottomans and the Austrians figured it out, or Lazaretos, okay, simple, right? The Venetians were experts at it. The rules are very simple. There are not that many of them. When we uh, talk about precautionary principle, a lot of people have the illusion that it multiplies into zillions of regulations. No. One comment I'd like to make about the regulators, like European regulators, they're great at being regulators. In other words, they regulate for pleasure. And if you put 200,000 people in Brussels, you know, of course they have great French fries and beef tallow and whatever, duck fat, whatever. But at the same time, what comes with it is these people are going to regulate you out of existence on things that are trivial. They like to do the trivial because it's easier to sell. <laughs> so they regulate... Vacuum cleaners, all right? The, what, how much energy should be, or the speed of your windshield wiper on a farm tractor if it has a windshield, that kind of things, but they can't control the borders. And they didn't think of COVID. Of all the people we spoke to, because a lot of people try to talk to me about risk, thinking that, you know, you sh should talk to someone like me about risk. Okay. And usually I get upset because, hey, where's the next black one? You're not getting it. <laughs> the Singaporean government. They didn't fare very well with COVID as much as they did before. I think maybe because my friend was gone or something, but they knew, they said, okay, what can go wrong? And let's reverse engineer our hedge, the reverse of what you think, and build things in a way to stand that kind of uh, shock. Are there other examples outside of Singapore? I'm very interested in Singapore, and I guess who is it, Lee Kuan Yew, and the entire story of Singapore is pretty wild. Any models or leadership outside of Singapore, not necessarily related to COVID, although it could be that you think does a good job of applying precautionary principle or working backwards in the way you described? All traditional societies or traditional communities like Italy would resist GMOs 
And also people online may say, oh, this is anti-scientific. They know it's science is not about that, for example. So it depends on which domain. There's some domain, some people are good at some domain, not others. Like Russia was very good at some classes of risk, but not visibly at, at, at others. So it depends on countries. Like Italy got paranoid about nuclear. There's one attribute of our environment that we should realize is the non-trivial effects of propaganda on the mind of people, particularly when it's well organized. The KGB was not very good at spying, we discovered, but was very good at disinformation. So everybody panicked about the nuclear because they didn't want Reagan to put ballistic missiles in Germany. And they infiltrated, Putin knows something about it when he was in Germany, they infiltrated all these green movements by directing the Greens against uh, nuclear, for example. So I truly think that we're suffering a lot from this disinformation up to today when people worry about some risks, not others. I mean, another example of that is Germany with Fukushima. Yeah. That freaked out over something that actually didn't kill people, shut down their entire nuclear program, and in its place opened up a bunch of coal-fired coal, power plants. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is, the, <laughs> you know, obviously much more direct risk to humanity than nuclear power plants that don't kill people. The radiation in uh, Chernobyl, I knew that when I was writing The Black Swan, I didn't talk about it because I know it was dicey, was lower than that in Utah. But it's not the point, it's Chernobyl is too big. If you make small reactors, let them blow up. So, what happened if you can, because of convexity, you see, one reactor is vastly more dangerous than 10 small ones, and the 10 small ones are not likely to blow up at the same time. I don't know if one reacted, how, what's, the, what's the factor, you know, what's the, the multiplier, but they are nonlinearities. But definitely when you have a lot of small ones, it can blow up at different times. One thing you know, about our previous conversation, when you say the banking sector, banking sector, the banking sector is very safe for one reason. It's a utility. With high-paid bankers living around here, you see, have big Soho lofts, $10 million Soho lofts, basically your utility, because they don't let it go under. It's not the one you got to worry about. It's the, uh, the saving it, again, that you have to worry about. The effect of saving it, like the, we saved it in 2008, was what? It was government debt, and it exploded. And then again, in 2020, they bought so much commercial paper, so many things. Again, all these things aimed at saving the financial system, bank-wise, have spillover effects, but we're going to save the bank system because you cannot operate without it. Plus, another thing has happened is that banks used to take a lot of risk. Since 2008, risk has migrated from banks to hedge funds. Now, it's less concentrated, but it still can be concentrated. In what way can that be concentrated? In other words, he has a friend who has a big fund that's larger than <laughs> a lot of banks. I'm not mentioning names, right? So you have a lot of big hedge funds, but I guess they can be diversified. Hedge funds have skin in the game. In other words, the owner of the hedge fund has money in it, unlike a bank where you just have the upside, not the downside. Of course, long-term capital management is the counterexample. No, no, it is. People, the, the skin in the game is a disincentive, of course, but it also skin in the game is a filter. So where are the people from, is anybody from long-term capital management still around? Last I heard, John Merriweather was uh, 
uh, 10 years ago trying to start a hedge fund. But well, well, there you no, go. So, so if you can't recover, the skin in the game is following effect. The reason you don't see crazy drive, too many crazy drivers is because they're dead. Because you inflict risk on others, but you experience the same risk. So you tend to exit the pool. So it seems then, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but that the migration of risk-taking to the hedge funds, assuming that the GPs or the, the people running the fund have sufficient skin in the game, would seem to be a net positive. The hedge funds are okay, but we have had the, the, the risky part, the ones that are most fragile, the private equity. And of course, by far, uh, people who need funding because... I don't know if you realize, but we had, since we had our uh, three bottles of pink champagne, or yeah. like four bottles, whatever, a lot of pink champagne to uh, celebrate Lehman's departure, right, from this town. Since then, we put interest rate at close to zero. So when I was a student, and everything, for me, an investment was something that generates cash flow. So you build something that generates cash flow. So you value cash flow and or residual value at the end. Okay, and that, so you can have, you can tolerate negative cash flow if you're going to get some later on. So it's like us, if you, you discover gold later on. There's a, the, so the business model was cash flow based, whether short-term or long-term cash flow. The world has changed, all right, in the funding world. What is the game now? Is who you're going to sell your company to. I see. So you're talking about startups in this case? Exactly. Startups or, or, or a lot of investments. Uh, you buy an apartment, you buy a house, you buy a building, you buy something, or you invest in some crazy idea. And someone was, was contacting me about LLM model, models, you know, ChatGPT, by saying, oh, we have this startup, I'm investing in this startup. And looked at the rationale, and then he said, yeah, I'd be able to sell it and within two years. I said, listen, this is a trap, okay? So companies, say even Twitter was operating on a following modus, we go to the market, okay, as a cash machine. So you don't even have to generate cash. So basically everything was, came from, it has Ponzi characteristics. Someone else will buy our uh, company or we're packaging a company to sell it to someone else. Okay, now that started before the great financial crisis, but it was very moderate. It, of course, it took place during the crazy period of the internet bubble and then died. So we had had episodes of that effect. But now it's ingrained in people have now for 15 years of low interest rates. You have people in their 40s who have never seen interest rates. And they don't know how to behave. They don't know how to invest. So I think the most fragile part today is not the banks, of course, as we said. And it's not hedge funds because it's sort of like mature adults, typically. It is those startups. <laughs> and and the yeah. VCs and the venture capitalists, but venture capitalists actually played quite a nasty game because they cashed out. All of, the, all of them are rich on companies that never made a penny. You see, I, I know a lot, there's a lot of, take how many billionaires you have in Silicon, from Silicon Valley, right? Who ever made a penny? It's valuation, maybe, as I say. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot to that game. The, I, I will say also, I think there are going to be tremendous fatalities in the next probably th three quarters in the startup world because uh, there's been a lot of contraction of funding which i think is ultimately probably a good thing but a lot of these companies are raised it's not it's a good thing it's a necessary thing yeah no it's well right i mean it's the calling of the herd so i think we're but, gonna but, see that, a lot but of that. think about it this will will finally will get waiters because we have shortage of waiters Okay, we, we finally will get wait. I mean, you go to restaurants and 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 they can't, uh, you know, they have one waiter for the whole room. And uh, so we'll get more waiters, we'll get more uh, 
people who you know will help you uh you know mow the grass and stuff i mean we've got a lot of lot of supply of uh <laughs> former former startup founders serving you your negroni we'll see how it shakes out i'm curious to see nasim are there any ideas concepts you would like to discuss is there anything that we've missed ed thorpe <laughs> we could always talk about it no, I mean, <laughs> convexity is a set of things mm -hmm. so i started writing on convexity or studying convexity you know after between the time we had the uh, <laughs> the eggs and the champagne the eggs no no the, the, the eggs the eggs was 2002 <laughs> eggs 2001 2002 <laughs> and uh, since then i, I had a, some, some 80 scientific papers so my, my enemies, they don't know how to handle it because they, they can't say that it's not science. So anyway, so I think the, the central thing for me is convexity, and it led me into papers in oncology, in medicine, because again, oncologists knew stuff, doctors knew stuff, but the language they used did not accommodate this notion of convexity, 10 times 1, the nonlinearity. They sort of suspected it, but it was not formalized. So I just published something in oncology, we did a lot of stuff in epidemiology on tails. So convexity on tails. And convexity is, is, is the most important. For example, people don't realize that convexity means you like volatility. Concavity, you don't. On the zone where you're convex. And people missed the point that was already mentioned in a paper I wrote before COVID on citing sources for lung ventilators. If you give someone a dose of 100%, the person may die. But if you give that person 80%, 120%, they have a much higher uh, survival rate. Why? Because they like volatility. Like heart rate variability. Like heart rate When I wrote Antifragile, I was writing between 2009 and 2012, nobody believed in heart rate variability. You see? And they thought you need to study heart rate. It's a predictor of death. So it's the same thing for a lot of things where you have, that's a convexity effect. So that's sort of what I'm focusing on now is these convex responses, convex stuff, applied to fields where, you know, they need to be applied, like uh, medicine. And the same thing with nutrition. But nutrition figured out early on intermittent fasting. Well, it's a convexity thing. Instead of having a dose throughout the day, you have it, and it's a different response. But there is a limit. You'd rather have your calories, a concentration limit. You'd rather have your calories, you know, once a day is okay, once a week, uh, not so sure, you see? So there is an optimum thing. It's the same thing can be generalized to other things. This is, this is what I'm working on, and it's taken me a while. All that comes from optionality, option trading. Does it make sense for people to become familiar, even if they never engage with options, in some basic education in options trading? Or would you say skip that and study? Skip that because they're going to sell options. But I would say, they used to say nine-tenths of option players will be uh, sellers. I think it's 99 out of 100. It's so appealing. Because someone's going to give them the story. You sell options, you have steady income. There's nothing people like more than steady income. And the reason Mark is in business, because he's the only person I know who doesn't care about the psychological prop up of having steady income. Because everybody else has a steady income. They would debase the trade to have a steady income. And sure enough, you get steady income by selling the tails. And that is generalized. To give you an idea, companies that have steady income are short an option somewhere. Say that one more time. Companies that have steady income are short an option somewhere. You see, so it's not trading options that will help you. It's looking at optionality in business and in places who will short that optionality. Like you can have two funds. They all have the same return. One fund can have a lot of short options, 
and one fund can be robust. You won't be able from the outside, and security analysts have no idea. Weapons of mass destruction. Ordinary people should stay away <laughs> from these derivative contracts. And it's one of the things that I had to deal with this book with, with my editor and people who I've, who've interviewed me since then is everybody wants to know how to do the universal trade, you know, mom and pop, how, how, <laughs> how do you, how does mom and pop protect themselves against these things? Cause you know, I, in the book, I warn these downturns are very bad for your portfolio. This, these are the things that kill you. You know, if you go down 40, 50%, you know, this is something that Mark talks a lot about. You lose 50% to get back to where you were before it happened. You have to make a hundred percent. So these are the things that you really want to protect yourself against. And my editor was like, well, he wanted to know for his own, cause he was getting scared. How does an ordinary person do this? How do they protect themselves against these big and, events? And my and, answer is an ordinary person should focus on her or his business. And dentists should focus on dentistry, not trading gold. <laughs> you see, I mean, my experience, you see people whose business is not the finance. And they think that they've got to make money out of their checking account. So what happens is that they have so much scrutiny by their own business. Say they run a bakery, they know the suppliers, this guy pays, this guy, they know all the risks. And then they blindly put their money into something they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> So this is where the sucker, you know what I'm saying, is domain dependent, that some people are skeptical in one area, but don't transfer to stock market. It's the same thing. So there's something about the stock market, particularly with the, the weakness of religion, that makes people believe in stories of uh, returns, but not believe in theological arguments that we've had for 2,000 years. So it's the same thing. So I tell people, listen, what do you do? Oh, I have a bakery. Focus on baking and, and, and use your money to preserve. That's not your business. So this is what you tell a pop and mom. You don't tell them how to do universal trade. You tell them they can't do it. Yeah, That's the problem is well, it's not I mean, I, I get the you know after being in Silicon Valley for seventeen years and having some pretty good luck with startups, I get the question of like, how can I invest in early stage startups? I'm like, don't, yeah, don't, do not exactly. under any circumstances do that. It's like unless you're living in the middle of the switch box and you're dedicating your time to that. Do not yeah. do it. Unless you're a trader, don't trade. Yeah. Unless you're a baker, don't bake. <laughs> Unless you're a dynamite maker, okay, don't make dynamite and stuff like that. I mean, it's elementary. <laughs> this is Scott, the new book, Chaos Kings How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis, is available where all fine books can be found. I can find you online, scottpattersonbooks.com, on Twitter at Patterson Scott. And Nassim, where would you like people to engage with you if they engage with you or with your books, understanding that you have begun work on these various, I suppose, parts of your multi-part essay at different points in time? Is there a place where you would suggest people engage with your work first? I suppose it depends on their orientation. I think uh, Fooled by Randomness is the one that uh, people like the most. The black swan is what they cite the most. <laughs> and anti-fragile is the one they misuse the most. Misuse? Misuse, yeah, because they say, 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 oh yeah, the virus, you get stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I know, but what kills you doesn't make you stronger. <laughs> I mean, they're not getting it right. Like, the, the first thing to be fragile, to be anti-fragile, is first you have to eliminate fragilities. You see? Yeah, that, that's the first rule. You eliminate, you tell the risk. You don't open it up. So I don't know. But I would say fool by randomness is a good start. 
or if you're a lawyer scanning the game. I have no idea because I'm not thinking in terms of my past books. I'm thinking about the book I'm writing now. Yeah, what are you working on now? Well, yeah, two things. There's a technical insert to a second volume, which is all the scientific papers around these points. And I'm working now on a book that is pretty much like structured, like an ancient Roman Latin treatise, language treatise, okay, with questions and, and, and stuff like that. And it's liberating to be able to write without having the narrative, just point blank. And in it, I cover all these points. Question, what is convexity? And I've decided to do all of that in one book, and it's going to be called Principia. For example, why the risk of an individual getting this doesn't translate into a collective risk in the same way. Right, the swimming pool versus the swimming pool, stuff like that. And, and also why you can generalize, a lot of it has to do with scalability. People have the idea that we should have a virtuous individuals to have a virtuous society. Typically, if you force, no. There's a lot of greedy individuals can build a virtuous society. That's the Adam Smith argument, or actually one Malbranche. So the idea of scalability, for, for example, is the most misunderstood thing. Like a town is not a small village. I started the topic in anti-fragile, but how things scale differently. So a, a town is not a large village. A country is not the same as a municipality. And why, for example, you could be libertarian at the national level and autocratic at the municipal level. You see, or communist in the kibbutz, but libertarian at the state level. You, you could have a lot of these gradations, so things are more complicated. Among these things, I debunk in it. And then finally, one idea that also will be exposed but structured in it on the main difference between BS and non-BS, what I call verbalism. Uh, BS as in bullshit? Yeah. yeah okay, I, no, I was just making verbalism. sure I'm understanding. <laughs> verbalism and non-verbalism, what is not BS? Because a lot of scientific papers have BS and a lot of Casual things don't have BS. So I'm exploring all of these in a volume. I may call it Summa or Principia, to give it an arrogant title. Yeah, Principia. Principia. <laughs> or it. Summa or Principia uh, in Cartorum or something. What def- what, so what characterizes non-BS, I have to ask? Or BS, I have rigidity way. of meaning. The rigidity of meaning. So I learned that from arbitrage trading. I learned a lot of things from trading. An arbitrage trading, the law of one price, like if you combine things, you should, they should have the same price here, Singapore, or downtown, uptown combination, that you should have no arbitrage. I can't really buy, I used to do arbitrage. I started doing arbitrages like I'd buy an option with this, this converted to a cross thing, and end up with something cheaper than some other one I would short, and then you get it. So you should not have a law of one price. I say rigidity of meaning. Whatever words you use always refer to the same thing. That's what my criteria is. By the way, I cite you in my new book. Well, hopefully it's a good what citation. What you call retrospective, bigot, what you call bigoteering. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah. in other words, I have a so-called retrospective bigoteering. I have one section is on scalability, and one section is on the passage of time, how we don't get time right. And in it, I explain why, for example, it is improper to blame someone, past individual, retrospectively, for values we have today where we didn't have then. <laughs> You see, it's like, for example, uh, Aristotle did not like, uh, he was, uh, you know, a male chauvinist, chauvinist. I say, okay, is it, was it, it is wrong. Yeah, we know now, but he didn't know. <laughs> you see, he didn't know. It's just like saying, okay, why don't we blame him for not using a, a computer? Okay, there's no computer at the time. So you got to look at these terms. It should not flow back values backwards. 
But effectively, the Talmud, which I've been studying for a while, had a lot of uh, things on it. And don't tell me what, what it has on it. That it says. So, for example, they say Noah was virtuous for his day. Uh, someone pointed that to me in the Talmud. Twitter is very helpful, but I, I like these ancient texts to see how, how they, they would judge their own. Effectively, when in the 18th century, they had different values than the 15th century. And how did they judge them? And at the same time, people, the wise people know that, hey, they did not, it was not part of the customs at the time. How did you decide specifically on the Talmud? Because I like, that's not your upbringing. Okay, no, it's because I like Aramaic, which is closer to my native language, which is the Levantine dialect, Aramaic, and then started having interaction on Twitter with, with people who are Talmudic scholars. Based on the interest in the language? No, I put something in there. No, my interest in language, I have interest in ancient languages, more than interest in ideas. But I'm poor with languages. So it's not taken me anywhere except exploring texts. And I'm enjoying stuff. So you have a collection of ancient wisdom in the Talmud, embedded in the Talmud, that is very interesting because it's monumental work. I'm just wondering, I guess, in addition to or amongst the different sacred texts or scriptures that you could study, why that stands out? No, what stands out really is more like someone like Aquinas, the Summa Theologica, because written by one person, whereas the Talmud is a concoction of opinion on opinions, all right? <laughs> but I like the Talmud only because I had the privilege of understanding Semitic languages. So I'm enjoying it more for linguistic stuff, just for the fun of it. And it's fun to read something and you understand. This is why, I, plus, it is effectively a body of work that's quite monumental, you know, that took centuries to build, a collection of scholars, talking about scholars, and discussing one another over time. This is what, what I, like. I like about Aquinas, is took a topic, and boom, put everything in it. All the questions and answers you can have in it. He questioned himself. So this is why, why I'm much more impressed with Aquinas as an individual. I can never imitate Aquinas. So all I could be is a scholar, like one of those who contributed to that Talmud, you know, or one of small contributors, not Talmud, that collective uh, piece of work. I'm jealous of your ability to engage with the Semitic languages and just be able to access some of the text in its original form. I'm very jealous of that. Now, I enjoy that. I don't do as well with Greek as I should. Ancient Greek, I can do better with modern, but uh, Latin is easier than, mm -hmm. than uh, the Semitic languages. But the grammar is more complicated than Aramaic and Latin. Hmm. Well, we could go down that rabbit hole. Maybe sound, save that for the next round. I know we have food and booze to get to, but Scott, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Anything that maybe we didn't get to or anywhere you'd like to point people that I didn't mention? Or the next book that you'd like to give a teaser for? Anything, anything <laughs> no. at all that you'd like to, to mention uh, before no, we wrap up? No, we covered a lot. Really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate Nassim taking the time. I don't know about my next book. I mean, I'm right now just completely immersed in this climate world. And last year, the Biden administration passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation. But yeah. that thing is sending shockwaves through the climate technology world in ways that's just, it's kind of mind-blowing. And it's changed the game for America, at least, in, in its attempt to catch up with what China started more than 10 years ago to develop these technologies. But it's going to take a while. But in my opinion, it's, it's pretty necessary to 
start doing that. Yeah, I find the entire space super fascinating. And I know we were talking about the, the ideas in the current books. We didn't allocate a lot of real estate to that particular topic. But you know, I was thinking about what you were mentioning about climate change and some of the challenges in engaging different parties. And what I've found, I live in Texas, right? A lot of people engaged in the hydrocarbon businesses and so on. And I've spent time with a lot of these people who are not stupid. There's yeah. some very smart people, but there are you study the incentives and you see certain behaviors. You looked at the in, sort of incumbent interests. And where I have found productive conversations to be had is if I avoid certain types of language. So for instance, if I don't mention climate change, but I say, let's yeah. <laughs> put aside the question of whether humans are causing this or not, which is very painful for a lot of people to do, but it's a great way to fight, you know. But if I'm, if I'm like, look, let's put that aside and just look at extreme weather events and look at some of the upside potential with some of these technologies and like where they could find incentives like financial incentives outside of some of their current sandboxes i've had pretty good luck engaging people with that i don't always have the most compelling uh opportunities to immediately present them necessarily although there are i mean quite a few out there i've been working on some stories about climate technology in appalachia so I've had a lot of conversations with Republican lawmakers in states like West Virginia about efforts to bring in renewable energy into the state. And you can have perfectly rational conversations with them and they love it. And you don't talk about global warming or you know climate change. You talk about energy and you talk about how, you know, why would we not use this new form of energy? that's actually cheaper than everything else, wind and solar. And they get that. They're like, we're energy people. We understand it and they're embracing it. Yeah, I think energy independence is sort of a... That in competition with China. In competition. Well, I guess we can can save that for a round two. But I really appreciate the time from both of you. Took a ton of notes. For people listening, also, we'll have show notes linking to everything that we mentioned, as usual, at tim.blog slash podcast. So you'll be able to find references and links to certainly everything I have in my notes and a lot more that came up in conversation. Any last parting words, gentlemen? You're not going to play with dinner this time. I'm paying. <laughs> okay, agreed. agreed. Last time, no games. Last time, he went and paid. All right. <laughs> no games. I won't skulk off and surreptitiously pay for anything. So uh, on that note, off to dinner we go. And thank you very much, guys. And to everybody listening, thanks for tuning in. Hey, guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday, type that into your browser, tim.blog slash 
Friday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your sleep preferences. Their lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, that's not me, and even a mattress made specifically for kids. They have models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, as I often do and did last night on one of their beds. Models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions and on and on. They have you covered. So how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? Take the Helix Sleep Quiz at helixsleep.com slash Tim and find your perfect mattress in less than two minutes. Personally, for the last few years, I've been sleeping on a Helix Midnight Luxe mattress. I also have one of those in the guest bedroom and feedback from friends has always been fantastic. They frequently say it's the best night of sleep they've had in ages. It's something they comment on without any prompting from me whatsoever. Helix mattresses are American made and come with a 10 or 15 year warranty depending on the model. Your mattress will be shipped straight to your door free of charge and there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. If you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. Helix has been awarded number one mattress by both GQ and Wired magazines. And now Helix has harnessed years of extensive mattress expertise to bring you a truly elevated sleep experience. Their newest collection of mattresses called Helix Elite includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. So you can get exactly what your body needs. Each Helix Elite mattress comes with an extra layer of foam for pressure relief and thousands of extra micro coils for best in class support and durability. Every Helix Elite mattress also comes with a 15 year manufacturer's warranty and the same 100 night trial as the rest of Helix's mattresses. Helix is now running their Labor Day sale, which you can take advantage of. Until September 10th, get 25% off on all mattress orders plus two free pillows. That is very significant savings. That's 25 off because of their Labor Day sale. So check it out. Go to helixsleep.com slash Tim. One more time, helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash Tim. With Helix, better sleep starts now. This episode is brought to you by AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I view AG1 as comprehensive nutritional insurance, and that is nothing new. I actually recommended AG1 in my 2010 bestseller, more than a decade ago, The 4-Hour Body, and I did not get paid to do so. I simply loved the product and felt like it was the ultimate nutritionally dense supplement that you could use conveniently while on the run, which is, for me, a lot of the time. I have been using it a very, very long time indeed. And I do get asked a lot what I would take if I could only take one supplement. And the true answer is invariably AG1. It simply covers a ton of bases. I usually drink it in the mornings and frequently take their travel packs with me on the road. So what is AG1? What is this stuff? AG1 is a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. In a single scoop, AG1 gives you support for the brain, gut, and immune system. Since 2010, they have improved the formula 52 times in pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible using rigorous standards and high-quality ingredients. How many ingredients? 75. And you would be hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense formula 
on the market. It has a multivitamin, multimineral, superfood complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an antioxidant immune support formula, digestive enzymes, and adaptogens to help manage stress. Now, I do my best always to eat nutrient-dense meals. That is the basic, 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 basic requirement, right? That is why things are called supplements. Of course, that's what I focus on, but it is not always possible. It is not always easy. So part of my routine is using AG1 daily. If I'm on the road, on the run, it just makes it easy to get a lot of nutrients at once and to sleep easy knowing that I am checking a lot of important boxes. So each morning, AG1. That's just like brushing my teeth, part of the routine. It's also NSF certified for sports, so professional athletes trust it to be safe. And each pouch of AG1 contains exactly what is on the label, does not contain harmful levels of microbes or heavy metals, and is free of 280 banned substances. It's the ultimate nutritional supplement in one easy scoop. So take ownership of your health and try AG1 today. You will get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription purchase. So learn more, check it out. Go to drinkag1.com slash Tim. That's drinkag1, the number one. Drinkag1.com slash Tim. Last time, drinkag1.com slash Tim. Check it out.